This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. shared my experience with meeting with a medical director in 2019. I told him what my awake and walking ICU was doing, and he scoffed and said, quote, yeah, there's something about that in the research, but you'll never get our nurses to do that, unquote. Those words have burned in my soul ever since. As a nurse and having worked with hundreds of nurses, I adamantly reject that sentiment. One of the root problems that I am passionate about addressing across all disciplines, including physicians, is that clinicians are rarely ever taught what sedation actually does and the high costs of immobility. We can never assume that someone won't do the ABCDF bundle when they have never had the education, support, and opportunity to do it. This episode, I want to dive deep into the perspective of nurses, especially as they enter the ICU. How are they taught not only to care for patients, but approach learning in the hierarchy of power within the ICU. What kind of sedation, delirium, and mobility education do they receive in orientation? And then what are they pushed into at the bedside? How can we dare expect them to understand the ABCDF bundle when they are immediately immersed into a world of antiquated practices and culture? This episode, we're going to hear from a brave nurse that is in the thick of this conflict between what is best practices and what is normal what she knows from the research, and what she is seeing from the bedside. She is an experienced nurse newly entering the ICU and will share with us the process of initiation that many nurses receive. What she shares with us is not to unjustly zoom in on one nurse or one unit. This episode reveals a systemic problem that helps us understand that nurses are usually willing to do what is best for patients, but are unable to do so when immediately sucked into this environment and given inadequate and improper training. To protect her from more retribution than she has already received, her voice and her name have been changed for this episode. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for being willing to share your experiences and your insight. Can you give us some context into, um, as safely as you can, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a little bit of your background and what your experience has been coming into the ICU? Yeah, Kaylee, thank you so much for having me here. I'm uh, a few weeks in, I'd say three to four weeks into um, a program that is transitioning me from kind of a med search tele background to the ICU, to critical care. Um, I come with eight years of experience in med search tele and uh, step down intermediate care, however you want to say that, progressive care, and also just a, a little hint of uh, emergency there as well. So eight years in and now making the transition to the ICU. What made you want to go into critical care medicine? Ah, That's a good question. I I was never one of those ICU or bus nurses, um, but as I was progressing in my care and just found this love of absolute like 
nerdery of you know geeking out on pathophysiology and pharmacology i just love the intellectual aspect of icu um and that was hard it has been hard to reconcile with the fact that i worry about you know the moral distress of what we're doing in the icu with patients who are so so sick and sedated and not able to advocate for themselves but i kind of let the the intellectual part of me went out and I've decided to go ahead and, and make this uh, leap into the ICU. I mean, you have a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge in nursing, medicine in general, but you also had done a lot of research. You would listen to this podcast. You knew a lot about delirium, mobility, the ABCDF bundle. Um, you came in with a really unique perspective. <laughs> Yeah, you were also kind of bracing for it. You knew that patients were going to be sedated and immobilized. And we had talked before you entered, just knowing that this is going to be conflicting. How has that been for you, knowing a bit of what should be and then seeing what is? Honestly, Kaylee, it's been really hard because as a brand new ICU nurse with no authority, I can't say anything. I can't question what's going on with the sedation practices or the lack of mobility that I've been seeing in the ICU. And um, I just kind of have to sit with it and, and, and witness it and kind of buy my time until I get the respect and authority um, as an ICU nurse to say something, to just start questioning, to start pushing back. But right now, I don't. So all I have is is observations and um, definite misgivings for for what I'm seeing and being told to do with my patients. And I've heard this from podcast listeners when you hear this information, especially for our seasoned clinicians that had accepted this environment and this care as the norm. When they find this information out, when they realize what's actually happening to patients, what the alternative should be, um, it's really hard to go to work after that because you look around and you see the harm that we're talking about here. You can't unsee it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I'm definitely in that phase right now. You know, there was the initial excitement of like, wow, my eyes have been open to uh, delirium prevention and the um, ABCDEF bundle and early mobilization. Now I'm in the hard part of what do I do about it? This is morally distressing. How can I make an effect on this? And I think I'm at the lowest point I'll probably be in my career um, in terms of this. Um, and I hope that I can help shed some light on some of your other listeners who are going through what I'm going through. This is why I'm having you on the podcast. Cause I think this is a shared experience, whether for new grads, newly into the ICU or people that have been in the ICU for decades, how to bring this change. But your experience right now reveals a lot about why we're here, why the ABC of bundle has had such a struggle in rolling out. We've talked a little about, this will be for the, the recording. And I want to dive deep into what are you being taught? You're in an orientation program. Mm -hmm. You're being taught the basics of critical care medicine. Um, we would hope that some of the basics include how to help patients survive and thrive. 
what are you being taught about the ABCDF bundle? How is it presented to you? So the ABCDF bundle was actually a pretty significant part of my orientation, kind of the didactic uh, portion of uh, orientation. And um, the educator uh, who presented it seemed very passionate about it. And I think she truly is. Um, but that has not translated into what I've seen in practice. And what I have seen in practice is that travel nurses have not really bought in to the ABCDF bundle. And so it's hard to have that consistency in culture um, when you have over 50% of your nurses are travelers. How can you get all on the same page when there's such a turnover every three or four months? So what I see from the travelers, and, and this is in no way I'm speaking poorly of travelers because I think there are amazing travelers out there who have mm -hmm. just come with them huge amounts of wisdom. But what I'm seeing is that they have the travelers I have worked with have not bought in to early mobilization. They have not bought into, um, you know, have they haven't been educated to, you know, all the harms of sedation. And so, um, well, I I believe the management and the core staff do have at least, you know, an awareness of the ABCDF bundle and, and bringing that into the ICU, it isn't being practiced because of the high volume of travel nurses. And that is a very relatable problem yeah. now in a lot of ICUs. Um, we require so much consistency, education, especially when this is a, a change from the norm. When you train a team, you've got to keep your core team together. And the bundle requires the entire team, a lot of relationships. You need to know the yes. names of your colleagues yes. in order to call on them, to rely on them, to utilize them, to work together with them. So when you have so much transient employment happening, it's really hard to change the culture and preserve that culture. So when you, you're being, you're being trained by a travel nurse, yep. uh, which is really difficult. I, I think, I think anyone can agree that when you bring in new people to the ICU, part of that mentorship is developing that relationship and having someone that you're going to work with in the future yeah. and someone that you can go to with questions in the future. Mm -hmm. That's not what you're being provided, right? No. Um, and there's a general you know, awareness that this is not an ideal situation by any means, but just it's kind of the reality of the situation that they don't have enough core staff to train, you know, all of us who are coming through this, this program. Um, also the core staff, well, uh, actually I don't really want to bring up that part, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely not ideal. And I'm missing that cultural so socialization aspect that should be part of um, a training program. So you're learning things in orientation from an educator, you're learning good truths, great perspective, and you get to the bedside and you're working on an application. Mm -hmm. And what are you seeing at the bedside as far as, let's just talk about awakening trials. How are you taught to do awakening trials at the bedside? So what I was taught in the classroom was that you do an awakening trial at 8 a.m. every day. And sometimes there can be two awakening trials, but generally one at 8 a.m. every day. 
And what we are taught is that you shut off sedation at this point. You bring it to um, a halt, see how the patient does, and if they don't tolerate it, if they don't pass the awakening trial, then you put the sedation back on at half of what it was before, and then you go from there. What I've seen in practice is that the nurse will bring down, for example, the propofol by like five, five mics. Um, sorry, is it mics or milligrams? Mics. mics. Okay. So uh, the nurse will bring the propofol down by five mics or so, maybe even 10 and see how the patient does. And then she'll see that the patient is overriding the ventilator, like his respirations are um, higher than what the um, set respirations are. And she'll say he's not tolerating it. Or she'll see his heart rate go up or his blood pressure go up. And she'll say he's not tolerating it. We need to go back. He doesn't pass for today. And that's it. That's it. It was so, so awesome. it was so, such a small change that she made that I even asked her afterwards. I was like, when are we going to do the um, SAT? And I didn't even register that that was what she was trying to do. <laughs> she says, what are you talking about? We did it. I said, that was an SAT. That's not, that was awakening. That's not awakening. <laughs> it was that, that stark of a contrast as compared to what we were taught in the classroom. So that was on day shift. So then when you then report, you join the rounds on that patient. How was that discussed? The nurse just said exactly what we did. We tried to go down the propofol. He was overriding the ventilator. He didn't tolerate it. And so he did not pass. And did you see how far he was overriding the ventilator? Like what were the actual respirations? Yeah. So his um, set respirations were 18 and he was going to 26 or so, covering around 26. And no investigation as to why? Your respiratory distress? Is there anxiety? Is there fear? Is there pain? She thinks her interpretation is he's having anxiety. Because he he was able to communicate enough. He's like, are you in pain? No. Um, during the trial. You know what? Not during the trial. It was okay. just in general. He when was lightly sedated. Right, right. Um, and are you having trouble, like, with your breathing are you finding it difficult to breathe and he would say yes and then that was enough for her to decide we're not changing any of the settings there if anything going up on the propofol and sorry i also want to say like so he's on propofol also he was on uh 200 of fentanyl and 1.4 of dexmedetomine so significant but he was still responding to questions which is great that's a that's a lot of fentanyl yeah um and his ventilator settings were lower let me think here uh he was on a peep of seven and fio2 of 40 at that point so in some icus he would have hopefully been extubated or really close to being extubated yeah, sorry. 
So, yeah. So, I mean, there was discussion, like he's getting close. He's getting close here. So I was, I was hoping for more, (laughs) more um, enthusiasm about it. And then I felt that, um, you know, and I'm interested to hear what your perspective of this came, but to me, it, it seemed like kind of a very half-hearted attempt. Right. And then when I would love to see more discussion saying, well, why, why was he overriding the vent? And, and is a respiratory rate of 26 really that dangerous? Can we help him calm down, work the anxiety, those kind of things to decrease his respiratory rate and ultimately get him extubated? Are we costing him another day or more on the ventilator because of this approach to awakening trial? So as a, if I was there as a nurse practitioner, I'd be digging in deeper. I would be saying, well, let's do it together. I'll go in the room with you. Let's take the sedation off together. Let's work this through and see if we can get him extubated. That's what I would do. Or let's sit him up. If he's not ready to be extubated, if he fails his breathing trial, well, let's, let's get him ready for a, a successful breathing trial later or even tomorrow by mobilizing him. Let's get PT and OT in there to help with the awakened trial. Like that's what we need to be doing with that kind of information. Um, So that's what I would love to see more collaboration, how to bring everyone together to achieve the goal of getting the patient awake, mobile off the ventilator. Um, When we just say, okay, it was a failed trial without further investigation, we miss so many opportunities to fix the problem, to learn, to collaborate. We, We just, miss out and it's our patients that suffer but for you coming into this environment that's got to be so confusing it's very confusing because like so many things in nursing we're kind of taught one thing and then we practice another and i was like well is this really how it goes with sats and svts like is it really that much more of a um is it really that much of a difference in practice than it is in in the classroom and you know my preceptor was saying oh it's really an art like you you know it's not it's not just shutting off the sedation it's going down a little bit and and so i was i was very confused as you were saying like is this really how it's done or but, you know, I'd really like to think that it's it's not that 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 this was just someone who, you know, my preceptor comes in with 30 years of experience who staunchly feels like she's she's doing right by the patient because it's not nice to have a tube down your throat. And she really feels like, you know, she keeps saying, oh, he needs to sleep. He needs to sleep. That's good for him. He's done a lot of work. He needs to sleep. And it really is coming out of a good place, right? Right. Like she's, she's, you know, (laughs) really identifies as an advocate for a patient. So you're right. It's hard for me to reconcile that, that practice that she's, you know, that she's practicing versus what. I think and kind of really know to, to be wrong. And again, you're seasoned, you're educated, you know, that sedation's not sleep, you know, about delirium. And yet it's still hard to question these things because when everyone around you treats it as so normal and you're new to that environment, it's, it's so intimidating. It's so hard. I fall for this as well. I mean, I had worked in an awake and walk in ICU for two years 
then I think it was probably my third facility. It was in 2016 that they were finally doing awakening trials. And this, it was taught to me very much the same way. You turn down sedation enough to see them start to move, turn it back on. And so even though I had worked in this awake and walking ICU in this environment where I, almost all my patients were awake, I was like, oh, is that what we do? I had questions. Why are we doing this? How do we, and they said, that's how you know that they can't tolerate the ventilator. Well, I was wondering, but why aren't they tolerating the ventilator? Because I've seen so many patients tolerate the ventilator. So why not? I don't think it's just the ventilator. And I don't think that's a real neuro exam. I still don't know what's going on with their brain. I don't know why they're acting this way. I had all these questions, but um, you kind of succumb to the environment. It's a shut up and do it environment, which is scary. And I was, you know, two years into my career. And even though I had experience, I had knowledge, I didn't have the right knowledge to advocate um, and to push back. But there's this, you're not psychologically safe in those environments. You're the newbie. For me, I'm like, I'm the newbie and the visitor. So I just shut up and did it the way that everyone else is doing it. You fall into this, what Dr. Ely calls is a malignant normality. Mm. And that's what's expected of you right now, right? It is. And it's even worse than that. In, in, in my case, at least, that if I question then I'm being labeled as, um, you know, difficult or um, uneducated, you know, like why would I push back on a nurse of 30 years experience um, or that I'm resistant to feedback? (laughs) That's when I hear sometimes. Um, So it's really, it's really difficult and detrimental for me to voice anything that goes against, you know, this practice of vulgar sedation. And you feel like your employment is at risk. Yes, I do. It's just so unsafe for everybody to have this kind of environment where clinicians are not safe to ask questions, bring evidence to the table, bring their past experience. I mean, in my perspective, if I was a nurse manager, I'd say, wow, a med surge nurse with eight years of experience who you do lots of extracurricular things. I mean, who brings in so much rich insight to the ICU. Awesome. Let's do everything to make sure that we give you a chance to succeed in the ICU, that we keep you. You're going to be a great asset to the team. You've already shown leadership in your career. You would want to foster that kind of environment where you can keep gems like you, but that's not what you're feeling. That's not what you're experiencing. You're worried about losing your employment because you're trying to advocate for patients. Right. That's obviously how I look at it. I think, um, as an employer, they probably, they want me to be treatable and me questioning a nurse of 30 years is, you know, maybe in their eyes, not, not treatable. I, And Kaylee, I wanted to bring up the point that, you know, during rounds, when we brought up, you know, what happened during the awakening trial in the morning, um, the physician could have spoken up too. And, you know, when I talk to physicians about delirium and early mobilization, they seem really on board and they've made that switch in their mind from, you know, target RAS of minus four, minus five to being awake. And, you know, that RAS of minus one, minus two. Um, But 
sometimes I think that physicians kind of let nurses run the show of some things because it's just easier for them. And you get these, I, I, I don't want to say this in a negative way, but you, you get these ICU nurses who are so set in their ways and they're so proud of how good they are and their practice that it would just be an uphill battle to go against them. So it's, <laughs> it's a multidisciplinary, right? Like you need, yeah. it sounds to me that the doctor didn't say something back when, when, you know, my preceptor gave this um, summary of what happened during the waking trial, like he should have felt like he had the authority to come back and say, you know, that's not a true awakening trial or what else can we do um, to get this patient more awake. And I think there's a lot behind that. Um, my first thoughts are one, I don't think physicians are as trained and prepared to practice a bundle as we assume that they are. Mm. I don't know that they really know how, for the most part, I'm generalizing, right? But most do not necessarily know how to do awakening trials, how to help patients with agitation, how to work through delirium, how to mobilize them. So they can say, wow, the evidence is really compelling. I understand the science and the statistics from these studies, but at the bedside, do they know how to bring in that human approach and even just the logistics of how to work a patient through coming out of sedation? My experience is that they, they don't. They also need that training, that support, that experience to develop that expertise. So we sometimes rely on them. We want them to take that leadership. I don't think they're prepared to. Second, even if they do understand and they do have the skills for this, it is really scary to challenge a nurse. So I have experienced it as a nurse practitioner. Um, I remember when COVID hit, we had a patient that was um, not even agitated. He was restless on the ventilator. He was coming out of sedation. And one of the float nurses who was probably 30 years my senior, very experienced, I had a lot of respect for her, came and asked for an Ativan drip. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And I was shocked, right? And I, and I, but it was hard for me to tell her no. One, I wasn't used to nurses asking for sedation period because I was used to my nurses, nurses that had trained me, right? That were so expert in this, but this was a new environment. She couldn't understand why he was awake and she wanted an Ativan drip because he was anxious, she said. And so I just remember being like, how do I tell her no? Because the reality is 
I'm doing notes and transfers and discharges on 13 patients right now, four, maybe 16 at the time. And um, I'm not the one at the bedside having to help this patient work through. I can go and I can assess and I'm going to give like recommendations and try to help her. But I'm not the one having to be in that room all the time like a nurse is. So there's this really the sense of guilt um, of saying, no, just don't sedate them. You deal with it. But most clinicians don't know how to help them deal with it. So it's really conflicting. So you you just don't want to be that provider that just says no. Also, it's a seasoned nurse. So you trust that they know what they're talking about. So in that moment, I had to say I had to take it as a teaching opportunity. And my my initial response probably could have been better. But I said, well, who's going to clean up that mess? I was still kind of in shock. Right. But and that could have took her back. And I said, well, just think about it. Right. We start that drip now. It's going to be like a grenade that you're passing down shift to shift. It's going to cause a lot more delirium, a lot more agitation, and someone's going to have to take that off. And if we, and then we can't mobilize them. I just tried to explain that big picture. So I tried to take that moment to educate. And I wasn't used to necessarily having to educate the nurses because they were the ones educating me most of the time. But that's what leadership leaders should do. Providers, whether it's PA, nurse practitioner, MD, when those they're coming to you with a request for a reason, because something's happening with the patient. But if we give recommendations that are not in line with the ADF bundle, or we accept their ideas that are not part of that bundle without investigating the root cause, providing actual support, education, tools to really fix the problem, then we're never going to master the bundle. So you're right. The physician missed an opportunity in that moment to guide, to do best practices, and to educate and help bring that culture change. This is what we need. I, what teams that I've trained. Um, sometimes the physicians will say, we support you. We're all about it, but they don't participate in the trainings. So then later on, they become the barrier. Not all physicians are bought on, bought in. So one team said, yeah, obviously this one physician didn't catch the memo, what we, what we were working on. And I was trying to get my patient awake and they didn't want the patient to be awake, but I couldn't understand why they needed to be sedated. But the physician was stuck on that with no explanation other than they're intubated. So here we made all this progress with the other members of the team <laughs> and ended up being the physician that was the barrier because they figured that this is a nursing thing. Mm. Mobility is a PTOT thing. Thumbs up from a distance. That's not what makes a change. It's actually being involved as physicians, actually knowing it for yourself and knowing how to teach it, how to guide it, how to troubleshoot it for each patient with all your clinicians. So that's my, that's my tangent about the physician. Um, provider role. Your observation was correct. They needed to have jumped in and said, look, they're so close to being intubated. What if we sat them up? Could their peep drop down? Could we get them extubated today? Instead of saying, oh yeah, they, they took what, eight extra breaths a minute on the ventilator when the sedation was turned off. Well, yeah, let's keep them intubated for another day at least. That doesn't make sense. I wanted to bring up the point here that, you know, my preceptor kept saying, you know, it's not nice to have a tube down your throat. You know, it's not nice to let him be awake through that. And I, I was hoping you could kind of walk me through that um, sentiment that you hear. And because in my mind, he's so sedated that you can't explain to him why he has a tube down your throat. But, and this is just my, my you know, early ICU thinking here by early ICU and like this is my um newbie ICU thought here was can you awake can you get him awake enough to explain to him you have a tube down your throat you have COVID pneumonia 
you're in the ICU, you're doing better, but this is your lifeline right now. This is what's going to keep you alive. Could you have, could that have worked instead of just putting him back, back to sleep? I'm putting air quotes here, quote, back quote, to sleep. Yeah. yeah. What looks like sleep, but we know is not. Well, this is why your perspective is so valuable because you're coming from medical surgical step down unit where you are used to talking to patients. You trust patients, you involve patients in their care. That's your norm. What's unfortunate is that when you do this for decades, when you sedate patients for decades, subconsciously, you stop expecting patients to be involved or have any kind of engagement or control in their journey. You don't trust them to understand. You just kind of, it's a little bit dehumanizing. I don't think anyone intends to do that. So that's the first thought that comes to your mind is, well, can we just explain it to them? Because I explain all sorts of things to my patients all the time. My patients in the past have had devices. I taught them what it was. They didn't pull it out. But for seasoned ICU nurses, you have to appreciate that this is a very new concept. Most of their patients with endotracheal tubes are sedated. And then when they're coming out of sedation, they're delirious. They do not have the capacity to understand. So the proposal that you tell the patient what's going on is a new concept for many. That's one of the things that I even train teams on. And this isn't demeaning to anyone. This is just the reality is we need a second to question those beliefs. So this is why, and I don't mean to be putting plugs in for my services, but this is the problem that we're always trying to address. When I do webinars, we have to address that misinformation. Yeah. It's not misinformation that the tube is uncomfortable. That's a given. That is undeniable. That is absolute truth. What nurses and everyone on the team needs to understand is the alternative. They need to hear it from survivors. What actually, were they actually comfortable under sedation? Not usually. Did they have pain that went untreated? Oftentimes. Was it worth the price of a brain injury, of psychological trauma later on, right? That's the information that nurses do not have. Are you really hearing about the long-term cognitive impairments from sedation? Are you really hearing about the long-term disability in your training? Is that part of the discussion at rounds? No. Does that nurse have any idea what happens to these patients? No. And I thought about that because our patient, you know, kind of to, to fill out this picture a little bit, was in his 50s with COVID pneumonia. And he was... Um, you know, otherwise healthy individual with no cognitive de deficits at baseline. And he's been sedated, intubated for over two weeks. And he, I think, is going to be traked and pegged. So if you could approach the, you know, someone like my preceptor who, who is so you know, diehard patient advocate, maybe you could advocate like, hey, let's let's change this trajectory from discharging um, to an LTAC uh, to going home. I think if, if the provider could have, you know, maybe not just the provider, don't just put it on the provider, maybe the charge nurse or, you know, physical therapy, any, I don't know, anyone in that in that huddle could have presented that like, you know, we're we're at a a fork in the road here where they're talking about trach peg versus extubation so your choice here or like the result of this sat is dire in my opinion 
because he is this close to getting tricked and pegged. And that changes the total trajectory of the next few months, year, years of his life. So it needs to be part of the discussion. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about problem lists. We're talking about organ systems and rounds. We need to be talking about what's the big picture. Where does it come from? What was his baseline function? What are we doing to preserve that? What's going to happen the next week or two? So in the week of walking ICU, it was, I mean, discharge disposition was part of the discussion. It was always usually assumed that patients, we were getting them headed home. But if patients were having complicated courses, they came from an outside facility and they became deconditioned or something happened, they're deconditioned. Early on, we're saying, well, what if he has to go to an LTAC? I mean, not, not to say LTACs are the worst case scenario. It just was so uncommon there. And we really wanted to prevent it. We really wanted to get them home. So it was always saying, what can we do today to determine what they're going to, where they're going to be in two weeks or in a few days? Um, so when we just have this narrow side of our shift, so they breathe eight times over the, over the ventilator, um, that should determine the entire rest of the day or the next few days or the next few weeks, that should be what we d- determine whether or not they get a trach over. Really? Is that, is that what, is that looking at the big picture? So I think your inquiries are totally appropriate. Again, this is the value of a fresh perspective coming in. And I'm sorry that your voice is not valued. <laughs> it's just shut up and stick to the protocol. Yeah. For now, for now, mm-hmm. I, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, like I really wish and dream of there, you know, I, I really hope that I can get to the point of acceptance and authority and I see you to start addressing that culture. Um, but for now, I'm not there. When any of us that started anything new, it's always hard at the beginning. Obviously, you're facing barriers that are exceptionally difficult that are very distressing, morally distressing, cognitively challenging. Um, but it's easy for me to say from here, (laughs) but I would hope, and I would think that once you get on your own, you have your own footing, you build relationships with people, things will change. But what you're facing right now is very common. And, and, um, I mean, I think it's harder because you do know better. You have different insights when this is just normal. You don't really have to go through the moral distress when you don't know. So I've had travel nurses come to me after their contracts and say, I loved my experience here. I almost kind of wish that I didn't come here because now I don't know how to go anywhere else. Uh, Yes. How do I go back to what I was doing before after I've seen what's possible, especially in our COVID unit, right? They're about to go to a different COVID unit Mm -hmm. when they saw so many COVID patients probably all their COVID patients walk out the doors. How do they then go? So there's a challenge in knowing, but with that can come with a lot of power, but also a sense of obligation. So I don't, I don't know how to, (laughs) how to give the best advice to navigate that. But I just think, I just know that listeners can really relate to it. You're not the only one facing this challenge. And I think this explains a lot about why we're so stuck. A lot of the politics, the culture, the dynamics, um, don't ask questions, just do it. You're new. You don't know anything, right? I mean, there's, a, you know, you have to be teachable and I, I'm sure you are, but this kind like of I'm culture. Very teachable. When... Like I'm, I'm <laughs> constantly asking expert opinion about something. Like I don't accept 
things as I like, I'm always questioning why, but it's not from a place of like, I don't trust you. It's like, I want to make sure I'm doing the latest in evidence-based practice. Right. And, and your whole, all your history testifies to you, to you being a knowledge seeker, being inquisitive, being hungry for knowledge. That's why you're in critical care medicine. So, um, I would never challenge that, but the fact that the culture doesn't, um, allow that. This is what I've heard from many is that when they want to elevate practices, they want to engage their team, they hit a wall where it's, this is the way we've always done it. You're just a nurse or you're just a physical therapist or you're, you're just quote, quote, blah, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, and we're not allowing for our colleagues to be esteemed, to bring in the evidence. We're not flexible and open to new information. Um, we don't like our practices that we've done for decades to be challenged or questioned because it's, as we heard from um, Dr. Murphy, I don't know, about 10 episodes or so ago, he's done this for 50 years. And he said, it's, it is hard to look back and say, and be open to the fact that you've hurt patients. <sighs> There's something that's so obviously difficult about that. And I think that's a barrier. So for you, it's hard to navigate saying, Hey, you're hurting people, <laughs> which has to be said to a certain degree. But how do you as a new person say that? How do you suggest that you do, do it a different way and provide the why without being accusatory and um, having people get defensive? It is so challenging. I, April quote, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't envy your position, but I think a lot of people can relate to it. And I, that's why I'm, I'm here today is because not only is this very therapeutic for me to talk through this and to have kind of this litmus test of like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not a bad nurse here, um, but also to help other nurses who are in this position that I am, you know, to, to give you support and <laughs> that I hope, I hope it will get better and that while promoting, you know, some of the practices that you promote, Kaylee, with, you know, early mobilization and, and delirium prevention, that it's going to be a hard road, but also one that's very rewarding, very rewarding. I can think about some of the highlights of my bedside experience have been getting stroke patients outside of, you know, um, th those moments, you know, those, um, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it, of, you know, humanizing that patient. And it is so, so rewarding. So I'm up for the battle. I'm up for, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say battle. I'm up for the challenge. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here to stay. Um, there was one thing I wanted to talk about before we leave. And, and this is something you brought up in your webinar was about RAS scores. And um, as a, I went in and did a neuro exam for a patient of mine who had a stroke and I gave her a RAS of minus four and my uh, preceptor came like running in. She says, you charted minus four. She's like a minus one. She's like, and, and, and consistently every shift I am scoring a patient at a lower RAS than she is. And to the point where I'm like, am I crazy? Am I, 
am I totally fundamentally misunderstanding bra scores? I've watched YouTube videos. <laughs> you know, I've I've looked up, you know, the, the the criteria and I'm like, I really don't think that she is scoring correctly. Just because a patient's eyes are open doesn't mean a RAS of minus one. <laughs> so, I, I, right. So if they're, I mean, negative one to negative three technically is when they open their eyes or rouse to voice. Negative four, negative five is when they open their eye or negative four is when they respond to touch. Negative five is when they don't respond at all. So what's often happening that I'm seeing when I'm training teams, you know, you have really seasoned nurses that know so much, but when I, when I, they go to assess a RAS, they touch the patient and said, Hey, hi, are you there? You know, wake up or whatever. Like, Hey, Mrs. John, like this is, I am the nurse, whatever. They're touching the patient as they approach them. So when they flutter their eyelids to that touch, they're like, okay, yep. See, they're negative one. When that's really, you don't know what they are. So to do a RAS, you shouldn't touch them at all and just talk to them. If they keep their eyes open for 10, over 10 seconds and then close their eyes again, that's negative one. If they keep their eyes open for less than 10 seconds, it's negative two. If they kind of like flinch to voice, but don't necessarily really make eye contact, that's a negative three. If you have to touch them to get them to open their eyes or to respond, that's a negative four. If they don't respond, it's a negative five. So that is very unclear. So when we explain it that way, that here's touch, here's voice, people are like, oh, I didn't know that. And it's yeah. still, I mean, I think I've done the same thing because when you talk to patients, you, you connect with them, you touch them. So we've missed this key part. And I think that's why our patients end up sedated deeper than they need to be because we're, we're not really clear about how to do the RAS. So I'm sure the nurse really believes that this is a negative one, but we don't know what a negative one is. Even if it pops up on the computer, when you go to chart it, no one's really reading those fine lines <laughs> and you just kind of go with what, you know, what's the previous ch shift charted, what's prescribed. You just kind of chart that. So what you're observing is not just that nurse. This is not about one person. This is about a whole systemic problem throughout the community. I'm bringing you on to really dive into it, to give your perspective on it. But this is very common. So you're going to have lots of physical therapists, lots of nurses nodding their heads, lots of physicians saying, yep, April, you're not alone. Our, this is happening in our unit as well. So you're not crazy. I remember feeling like I was crazy when I was asking, why are they sedated? Can we get them up? Why can't we get them up? I, I felt like I was crazy and I had years of experience. And I thought I was crazy and I just shut up for two years. I regret that. Um, you are so needed. So I feel when I have, you're not the first one to reach out to me. I've had many people reach out to me over the years saying I am in such a hard spot. I don't know whether to leave. Um, Cause I don't know if I can do this, if I can see this harm and be feel powerless to change it, let alone be involved in it. Right. One, you're not accountable for your entire team's practices you don't have the power to change everyone all at once. So you're not liable for that. Don't put that on yourself. I think that's really important. It's easy to do to feel like, okay, I'm supposed to come in and change this entire unit. But that, that might be an opportunity you have in the future, but that's not your responsibility. So you, you're not accountable for what's happening right now, whether even to your own patients, because you're not in charge at all. When you get to be on your own and you have your own patients, 
you're going to have the opportunity to do awakening trials properly. You're going to build relationships. You're going to have an opportunity later. Um, so what happened is happening now is not necessarily what the future is going to be. I also don't want to pressure people into saying in an unsafe environment. I don't want to sacrifice people's mental health and well-being and relationships and families for this mission. I've seen that happen. And I don't want it to get to that point. So I don't want to beg people to stay to make the change. But I do feel optimistic that you can make a difference. That this can change and that you can be a leader. But I also want you to take care of yourself. And this applies to everyone that's listening. Take care of yourself too. You, you can't bring these changes if you're not in a good place. And if your team's not ready to make those changes and it's too distressing for you, don't, don't sacrifice yourself over this. Thank you, Kaylee. Thank you for taking that weight off of me. Absolutely. We, this is far bigger than you. This is far before you. Yeah. But, but if you, if you, if you can stay, I'm going to try. <laughs> but try. if you can't, it's okay. You take care of you. But thank you for caring about this. Thank you for entering critical care medicine, even knowing this is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Thank you for caring about patients enough to ask questions about all the things, but even about the ADF bundle when it's such a touchy subject. Thank you. Thank you, Kaylee. Unfortunately, since this recording, April has left her ICU. The poor support, culture, and practices caused the ICU to lose an experienced, competent, and compassionate nurse. She was willing to put in the work to learn all she could about critical care, but in the end, it was too much to withstand the moral injury she was suffering from harmful practices and an environment that was not going to support her learning and growth as a nurse. We cannot afford to continue to create and allow our ICUs to be unsafe for our patients and clinicians. It is too dangerous and expensive to hire and train nurses only to drive them out of the ICU. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode that will dive much deeper into psychological safety as it greatly impacts our ability to move cultural practices into evidence-based. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.